I'm going to ask you to stand now as I read Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 23. This will be our text for today. It's on page 983 in a pew Bible. So if you don't have a Bible with you, we'd love to have you get your eyes on that, flip to it. And if you don't own a Bible, please bring that Bible home. Let me read and follow along as I do. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast." not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have communicated your thoughts, your ways to us, and that we hold that in our hand this morning. As we study it, I I pray that we would receive it as the very word of God, profitable for teaching and for rebuke, and for correction, and for encouragement. Lord, we do pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would align us with your ways. Lord, we receive it humbly. I ask that you would empower us to obey it joyfully. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. This question may feel a little bit personal, but I'm going to ask it anyway, and if, you, if your answer is yes, I would love to have you answer the question with a yes by raising your hand nice and high. If your answer is no, keep your hand down, that's just fine, um, but, but I want to see who in this room has ever been hurt by a church. Who in this room has ever been hurt by a church? If you can say yes to that, either an organization of a church or an individual in a church, who who in this room has ever experienced hurt from a church? Quite a few of us. I have, and and some of you may be a little bit nervous to raise your hand, but many of us, the the majority, over 50% of us, have been hurt by a church, and maybe some of you haven't been in the church long enough to be hurt by it, or maybe some of you are just the type that, that you can... You can bear it out, you can stick it out, but I think many people in here have been hurt either by a church or in a church, either the organization or individual people in the church, whether it's abusive leadership or a lack of leadership. And so you just, the church was confused, it was lacking any direction, it was lacking any life, and you kind of sat there and felt like you were wasting time and like the church was wasting time. Maybe that didn't create a whole lot of hurt, but maybe a lot of confusion. Maybe you've never been hurt by the church. How many of you have been confused by the church? Lift your hand up for that one if you're a yes. Lift your hand for that. All right, so hurt, confused by the church. Maybe judgmental members have hurt you. 
I was just talking with someone last week whose friend does not want to attend a church because they felt judged by churches because of the way that they look, the clothes that they wear. Or maybe careless comments have hurt you in a church. Or bad counsel. Or maybe just crushed ideals. Maybe, maybe you love Jesus and you are a new Christian and, and trying to figure out what does it look like to express my faith in, in God. And people said you need to get into a local church and you got into a local church and you were like, well, this isn't the world-changing organization that I thought it was going to be. I have this new love for Jesus and, and Jesus changes the world He is the good news. He is the hope of the world. And so I expect that jumping into a local church is going to be life-changing, mind-blowing, radical experience. And then you show up and they ask you to sit in a pew and listen for a while. And maybe that's about it. Maybe that's all that your experience has been. The reality is church can hurt. Many of you have experienced that. Church can hurt. Park community isn't, isn't above this and outside of this. We as an organization and individuals in our church will hurt others. And we have been hurt by others. Because the church is made up of people. It's relational, right? And relationships can hurt. So the reality is that church can hurt. But the bigger reality is that Jesus can heal. So if you've been hurt by the church this morning, if you're somebody sitting here who's been hurt by organized religion or an organized body of people or a local church, I want you to hear louder than the reality that church can hurt, that Jesus can heal. And that's true for all of us. Maybe you're somebody who's just been going, going through steady through your life and church hasn't really ever hurt you. You still need to hear that Jesus can heal. That's what Paul lays down for us today in this passage. Church can hurt, Jesus can heal. Now, that's not the point of the passage, necessarily. The point of the passage, like all of Scripture, is Jesus. All of Scripture, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Psalms, the wisdom literatures, everything points us to Jesus, the Messiah. So our text this morning, like all the other texts in Scripture, point us to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the risen King, the true Lord. That's what this text points us to. But in application of us getting a greater vision of Jesus is that church can be a place for us to heal and find hope and find joy. If you've had past hurts with the church or you feel like the church is kind of out of place and outdated and not a place to grow, what we're going to see today is that the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter wants us to get a greater vision of Jesus He wants to see and savor Jesus, and then he wants to show us how that's good news for the church. So we're going to answer a two-part question this morning. What does this passage teach us about Jesus, and how is this good news for the church? What does this passage specifically that we just read teach us about Jesus, and how is this passage, how are these truths good news for the church? So the first thing this passage teaches us about Jesus is that Jesus is the image of God. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of God. Many people wonder, what's God like? And we have these misconceptions about what God is like. He's like a grandfather figure sitting up in the sky, kind of removed, and he listens if we, if we cry loud enough, if we speak loud enough, if we um, try and get his attention, or if we do all the right things, maybe he'll respond to us. That's what we often think about God. And people have these vague notions about God. They don't really have a defined idea of who God is. This passage right here is teaching us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So God is invisible. He's in heaven. He's he's presiding over all of creation. 
We've never seen him. We've never touched him. Most of us probably haven't heard an audible voice from him. And so being invisible, it's hard to understand exactly what God is like. In Isaiah 55, there's a passage in Isaiah 55 that says, For his thoughts, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways, God's ways, are not our ways, declares the Lord. So in the Old Testament, there was kind of this, this vague understanding of what God is like, and this, we get these big principles, and we begin to learn what God is like in the Old Testament. The Old Testament starts to reveal to us what God is like. But now in the New Testament, Jesus comes, and this passage says he is the image of of the invisible God. So if we want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Read the Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as you see Jesus in the Gospels, that will tell you what God, the creator of the universe, is like. He's not a vague character up in the sky. He's not like many of the founders of our country that were deists. They thought, okay, God is good and moral, and he created the earth, he set in motion, and then he stepped back, and now we're all figuring out. He's not like that at all. If you want to know what God is like, look at the Gospels, study Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. So when we see Jesus showing compassion, when we see Jesus having mercy, when we see Jesus weeping because his friend Lazarus had died, that shows us what God is like. God is empathetic. God is compassionate. God is merciful. There's a story in John chapter 8 where a woman is caught in adultery and the the punishment for adultery in this time was death. So the people who caught her in the act of adultery are going to kill her. They are going to stone her to death. And Jesus shows up and they ask Jesus what he thinks about this and he says, whoever of you is without sin, cast the first stone. Everybody drops their stone and leaves. That shows us what God is like. He's merciful, he's compassionate, he's forgiving. And he says, go and sin no more. So he's forgiving, he's compassionate, he's merciful, but he also has this expectation for us, go and sin no more. As we read the stories of Jesus, as we study the person of Jesus, we see what God is like. One commentator said, Christ brings clarity to our hazy notions of the immortal, immortal, invisible God who lives in unapproachable light. John Calvin, the church reformer, said, God in himself is invisible, and not only to the physical eye, but also to the human understanding. And he is revealed to us in Christ alone. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. But he has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, that he is revealed to us in Christ alone, where we may behold him as in a mirror. For in Christ he shows us his righteousness, his goodness, his wisdom, his power, in short, his entire self. So this passage tells us that if we want to understand God, if we want to know what God, the creator of the universe, is like, look to Jesus. Specifically, study the Gospels, look at Jesus' life, look at his miracles, look at his heart, and you will begin to understand God. This is good news for us, church, that Jesus is the image of God because it helps us to understand what God is like. That's one of the reasons why it's good news. But another reason this is good news is because we were what? I said it this morning at the dedication. People are created in what? The image of God, right? We, as human beings, are created in the image of God. Adam and Eve, 
The first humans created in the image of God. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that they're image bearers of God. But what happened when they disobeyed God, when they ate of the forbidden fruit? That image was tarnished. It was broken. It was distorted. And we experience that now, right? We are human beings, all of us, humans created in the image of God, but our experience with God and our experience with others is far from perfect, is it not? It's stained. It's distorted. It's riddled with sin. We are sinners by nature and choice. Our image-bearing quality has been distorted. We're still image-bearers, but we bear the image of God imperfectly. Jesus, however, bears the image of God perfectly. He restores the perfect image of God. He perfects the perfect image of God that was intended for us. In Romans chapter 5, we read about Jesus being the second Adam. So where the first Adam was created in the image of God and distorted that image, and every human being since then distorts that image through sin, through our choices, through our, through our shortcomings, Jesus came, and we say it often here at Park Community, he lived the life that we couldn't. He died the death that we should have. What's the life that he lived that we couldn't? The life of a perfect image bearer. He's, he's our forerunner. He goes before us and he lives the perfect life. He perfectly bears the image of God. This is good news for us, church. The second thing that this passage teaches us about Jesus is that he is first or he is the firstborn. So verse 15, he is the image of God. That's number one. He is the image of the invisible God. Number two, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is first. This passage will go on to tell us that he, in all things, he is first. He is preeminent. He is the first one, the first place. Right here it says he's firstborn. Now, this doesn't mean that he is the first created being. Cults will t in, misinterpret this verse like Jehovah's Witness will misinterpret this verse and say that Jesus was a created being. He wasn't, he wasn't eternally existing with God the Father. Now, sometimes there's unclear passages in Scripture. Like if you read that, it, it's easy to think just isolated. He is the firstborn of all creation. You could think, okay, if this is talking about Jesus, then clearly he was created. He was born. As we think of birth, he came into the world. He, he was the first created being. But if we pull it into the context of all of Scripture, we begin to understand that Jesus has always existed, that he was there with God the Father in creation as the Spirit was hovering over the water. John chapter 1 teaches us, about, teaches us about the Logos, the Word, Jesus, present in the beginning, from the beginning. Jesus is the firstborn. So what Paul is getting at here with this firstborn talk isn't saying that Jesus was the first one created. He's saying that Jesus receives the firstborn inheritance. In the biblical culture and context, being the firstborn male was an important thing because you received the inheritance of your father. You received your father's estate. You received your father's blessing. You received your father's land. You received your father's possession. And so what Paul is teaching us here is that Jesus is in the position, the place of being firstborn. He has, he has a position of prominence. He has a rank of prominence. He has the inheritance of the firstborn son. Everything that God has, he gives to Jesus, his son, who's existed eternally. This is good news for us, church, because Jesus doesn't hoard that inheritance for himself. 
but he extends it to us. Listen to John chapter 17, verse 22. This is Jesus praying about our unity. And he says, The glory that you, Father, have given to me, I give to them. Jesus, as the firstborn one who receives all the inheritance, shares with us that inheritance. The glory that you, Father, have given to me, I give to them. Jesus is extending God's glory through him. It's, it's God's gift to Jesus, the firstborn son, the one receiving the inheritance, and he gives it to us. He says, the glory of God the Father I give to you. You've inherited it if you believe in Christ. Romans chapter 8, 16 and 17 says this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. Everything that Jesus has has been given to us. Ephesians 1, 11 and 14 says it this way. In him, there's that in talk again. The last couple of weeks we've been talking about in Christ. Here it is again. 216 times in the New Testament, we, we get the terminology of in Christ, in the Lord, in him. Here it is, Ephesians 1, 11. In him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. We have inherited everything, all spiritual blessings in Christ. It's good news that Jesus is the firstborn, the one who's received all the inheritance, the one who gives all inheritance to us and shares it with us. The next thing this passage teaches us about Jesus is that he is the creator. So he's not the firstborn as in a created being. He's firstborn as in status and position. Look at what Paul goes on to say, verse 16. For by him all things were created. So he's not creation, he is creator. He has the position of the firstborn, but he's always existed and he is the creator. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, the cosmos, Visible and invisible, material world and the spiritual world which we cannot see. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator. Again, not as the cults say, he wasn't created by God, but he was eternally existing with God, creating all things. Think about creation for a minute. When I say the word creation, how many of you think about planet Earth? I do. When I hear creation, I think about uh, mountains and oceans and rivers and trees. I love nature. I love planet Earth. It's an incredible and beautiful creation. And it's big. I tried to, I googled this and I couldn't find an answer. So if any of you could google this and find an answer, I wanted to see how long would it take me to fly to every major city on the Earth. How long would it take me to fly and visit, even just fly and touch down and say, I've been to every major city on the earth? I think it would take a while because the earth is big and there's a lot of cities. And even though modern technology has given us planes and you can hop on a plane and within a couple hours be on the other side of the country and add a few more hours to that, you can cross over the ocean and be in a different, on a different continent. Even with that, it would take forever to explore this earth, would it not? I mean, if you were to just fly and touch down in every single city, let alone to try and go and explore all the cities of planet Earth, it would take you forever. Creation is big. But Earth 
in comparison to all of creation, is extremely small. Planet Earth is in the Milky Way galaxy. And in our solar system, we have a sun. The sun is bigger than the Earth. You know that, right? Do you know how many planet Earths can fit inside the sun? Does anyone remember that from like eighth grade class? 1.3 million planet Earths can fit inside the sun. Somebody said it out there. Good work. Yeah. 1.3 million planet Earths can fit inside our sun. And our sun is one of the many suns in all of creation. Our planet is one of the many planets, one of the many, just one single small things created in all of creation. And it seems incredibly big and expansive and vast to me. And it's just one teeny little speck. That's the Milky Way galaxy. And where that little circle is, that's where planet Earth is. And that middle part, that's not our sun. Our sun is just another little dot somewhere on that picture. That middle part is like a black hole. Whichever, whatever that means, I don't know. Are we going to get sucked into that someday and go to a different gal? I don't know how all of this works. <laughs> but we know from, from pictures that they've taken, people who are smarter than you and I, you probably wouldn't be sitting here at Park Community if you were working for NASA. They've, they've gotten up above this and taken pictures, and they know things about God's creation. It's vast. It's huge. It's expansive. And that's planet Earth. A teeny little dot, a teeny little speck in one galaxy out of, they say there's definitely millions of galaxies, potentially billions of galaxies in all of creation. This Milky Way, that's one galaxy with billions of stars and hundreds of suns and planets and we're one teeny little speck. Jesus is creator of all things. This is good news for us because it takes us out of the center of the world. Does it not? I mean, how big do we think we are? Sometimes we think we're pretty big, don't we? We think we're a big deal. We think that we have a lot of value. And when when we scan out and we look at the big scheme of things, we have no significance, none whatsoever. But because Jesus is the creator of all things and the one who died in our place for our sins, even though in the, if you zoom out and look at all things created, we are the most insignificant specks of dust. Jesus knows us by name. He died for us because he's the creator of all things. And he created you uniquely with your personality as an individual, and he went to the cross on your behalf, and he knows you, and he can know you because he's the creator. He created you. Jesus being creator is good news for us, for one, because it helps us to be humbled. I mean, we don't create much. We mirror God in creation, right? I mean, our jobs are creating, and some of you are so smart, and you create awesome apps or awesome engineers. You're helping to create things, and that's mirroring God. That's an image-bearing property. But compared to what God has created, it's incredibly small. And so it should humble us when we zoom out and we consider that God knows our name in spite of the vast expanse that he created It's good news because it humbles us. It's also good news because it tears down the sacred-secular divide. 
If Jesus is creator of all things, as it says here in 16 and 17, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This breaks down a sacred secular divide. If Jesus created all things for his glory, this doesn't mean that there's only particular things that are sacred. That when we gather together on a Sunday morning to worship, that that's a special sacred space and that when you go to work tomorrow morning, that's just a secular job and God isn't present and God doesn't care. Jesus being creator of all things breaks that down. When you go to work tomorrow, that is a sacred responsibility. As you create, as you manage, as you administrate, whatever you do in your place of work or if you're home with kids, you are, you are, you are an image bearer of God. You are creating things in a, in a similar way that God and Jesus have created. It's good news for us because it breaks down the sacred and secular. He didn't just create worship songs in prayer. He created meals and food and drink. And so if Jesus is creator of all things, why do you think he uses the elements of communion? Created things, bread and wine, to show us that we can worship through his creation. We have to be careful that we don't start to worship creation, but we can worship God the creator, Jesus the creator, through his creation. When you walk through the woods, when you look at the mountains, when you sit by the ocean, when you have a meal with friends, when you enjoy the taste of food and wine, this is, this is a good act of worship because Jesus is the creator of all things. Colossians chapter 3, which we'll get to in a few weeks, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus, as creator, breaks down the sacred-secular divide. Some of us have experienced church hurt because churches have created sacred and secular camps, right? Well, here's all the spiritual things. You need to come to a Bible study. You need to be a part of a prayer group. You need to be a part of this ministry. You need to give us your time in this way. And they make you feel guilty for spending time with friends, enjoying food with friends, or going to work and making money to provide for your family. Jesus, as creator of all things, breaks that sacred-secular divide down. One of the best things that we can as a church in the moving into the future is to help each other, remind each other that in all things, day in and day out, we have a sacred responsibility before us to love those around us, to do good work, to honor God in all things that we do because he's creator of all things. He doesn't just want your church or in devotions. He wants your worship when you're at work, when you're talking with your neighbor, when you're having a conversation about finances with your spouse. He's the creator of all of that. The next thing this passage teaches us about Jesus is that he's the sustainer of all things. So he's the creator of all things. He created it. He put it all in motion in verse 10, verse 17. And he is before all things, and in, in him all things hold together. He keeps it all together. He creates it, he sets it in motion, and then he holds it all together. He doesn't step back and hope that everything stays together. The reason that we haven't gone into that black hole and been sucked up into who knows what kind of thing a black hole sucks you up into, the reason we haven't is because Jesus sustains us. He created it. He sustains it. In him, all things hold together. This is good news for us as a church. 
when, it, when we feel like our life is spinning out of control, when you feel weak, like you can't go on, like you don't know the way to go, Jesus is sustaining you as an individual. Listen to Romans 8.34. It says, Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding for us. Jesus is the sustainer of all things. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father right now, interceding. That means that he's praying for you on your behalf right now. Jesus is the sustainer. He created all things and he sustains all things. He holds all things together. If life is spinning out of control, you need to know the truth. You need to know the gospel. You don't need to have some vague faith in faith and just hope that things will get better. What you need to know is that Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding on your behalf right now, always, and forever. He never takes a break. He never goes to sleep. He never slumbers. Jesus is interceding on your behalf. Your life is being sustained. You have the breath in your lungs. You take the breath that you just took because Jesus is sustaining your breath, your life, your being. And I didn't even say well-being because some of us may not feel like we're being well-sustained. But he's sustaining you. And in him, we get a new perspective and we don't have to live for the here and now as, as we'll get to as we continue. Actually, look at it, verse 23 right now. He sustains our life. He also sustains our faith. This is good news for us because we can't sustain our own faith. Look at verse 23. He says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all heaven under in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. That verse terrifies me, and I wrestle with it, because it seems like there's some kind of condition in here, does it not? Look, let's, let's go to verse 21. He says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, we were alienated from God, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh. He has brought you near. He has reconciled you to God the Father by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Okay, that's what God has done. We're justified in Jesus. And then verse 23 goes on to talk about sanctification. That, that means becoming more like Jesus, living out our faith. And it says, if indeed you continue in the faith, I don't have any assurance that I, in and of myself, can continue in the faith. What if something happens that causes me to doubt? And what if I can't work my way out of that doubt on my own? What if someone close to me dies? What if things happen that I can't make any sense of and I'm looking for answers and I can't find answers? I have no assurance in and of myself. Andrew Peterson cannot know that I will continue in the faith. I just, I don't have that kind of faith in my own faith. Stable and steadfast. I want to be a stable and steadfast person. I, I can't guarantee that. My wife has a great sense of faith because she said yes and married me. <laughs> Let's hope and pray that God empowers me to be stable and steadfast. I want that. We all want that, right? I mean, the last time that you broke your promise or broke your word or didn't follow through, were you intending to do that? No. Who doesn't want to be stable and steadfast? Who doesn't want to continue in the faith? Who doesn't want to have hope that never shifts? But we can't ensure that in and of ourselves. 
So it's good news that Jesus is the sustainer because he sustains our faith. He's the one who enables us to be stable and steadfast and to not shift from the hope that we have. We can't muster ourselves up and guarantee people that we have that to offer. That's why some of you have been hurt by churches, because people were in their own power trying to make decisions and trying to grow in faith and trying to be stable and steadfast, and and they weren't trusting the power of God at work in them, but they were kind of white-knuckling this thing called transformation, and if I'm going to do this, and we're going to create all these rules so that we don't shift from the faith rather than Jesus is the sustainer. If he's given us the gift of faith, he's going to sustain the gift of faith. If he wants us to be stable and steadfast, he's going to empower us to be stable and steadfast. And so it's good news that Jesus is the sustainer. It offers hope to the church. The next thing we see in this passage is that Jesus is the head of the church. Verse 18, and he is the head of the church, the body. The church is the body of Christ. It's the family of God. It's the building of God. There's many different analogies for it in Scripture. Right here, it's the body. And Jesus is the head. Wherever the head goes, the body follows. How awkward is it? I always lead with my head. If I'm going to look to the right because someone's talking to me, I don't do my shoulders first. I can't even get there. Your head leads the way. You move your head and your body follows. This is saying that Jesus is the head. He leads the way. The church, the body follows. You're trying it. I like it. See how far you can get without moving your head. Not very far. Jesus is the head of the church. Where he looks, we turn and follow. Where he leads, we ought to follow. And so when we get hurt by churches, it's because churches forget that Jesus is the head. And we start trying to turn our body without our head, without Jesus pointing the way and leading the way. This is such good news for the church. Jesus is the head honcho. You ever heard that phrase? Like, oh, sometimes people be like, oh, are you the head honcho around here? It's an older phrase. I don't know. Maybe some of you have heard it. Maybe some of you haven't. Like, the boss of an organization, he's the head honcho. Jesus is the head honcho of the church. Just this morning, actually, somebody came to church, and they said, hey, boss. And I liked it. It felt good. Yeah. But it's wrong. I'm not the boss. Jesus is the boss of the church, and this person didn't just meant it in a good, fun way. We can joke around with each other. We don't need to become sticklers for words that we use. But it reminded me, I'm so glad that I'm not the boss of Park Community Church. We would be in for it. If I was the boss, I would encourage you all to go find different churches right now. <laughs> Jesus is the head of the church. He's the boss. He's the senior pastor. He's the head pastor. He is all. This is good news, for, for it means that we're not led by a vocal minority. Many of you have been hurt by churches that were led by a vocal minority, not Jesus. Or by a silent majority. You know, those, those who just stick it out and they don't say anything, but years down the road, their way won out because they outlived, outlasted people. This is good news that those groups of people don't lead the church. It's good news for us that Jesus is the head of the church, not forceful personalities. Amen? It's good news that Jesus is the head of the church, not controlling committees. Amen? It's good news that Jesus is the head of the church, not manipulative spirituality. You ever felt that? I know many of you have been hurt by that. Kind of, well, a prayer, meh, this manipulative spirituality, it happens in churches. We try and manipulate people to do our will and our agenda with spiritual talk. Jesus is the head of the church, not manipulative spirituality. Jesus is the head of the church, not the growing ministry. 
Now, when ministries are growing, I think we need to look and say, what's the fruit? What's God doing there? Is this an indicator that this is where Jesus wants us to look? But sometimes things can grow and, and it actually may not be of the Lord. And so just because something has numbers doesn't mean that that becomes the force that makes decisions. Jesus is the head of the church, not outdated policy. Jesus is the head of the church, not personal preference of worship style, of dress, of, of programs, of whatever. Jesus is the head of the church, not a synod or a denomination. Now, I said this last week, but Paul and Timothy are working like denominational staff here. They're writing from a different city to the church in Colossia, giving them some, some teaching and some direction on how they should do their church. I'm glad that we're a part of a denomination, that we have Brian Ferrona, district superintendent, who loves us and cares for us and would check up on me and make sure that I'm not teaching you false doctrine. That we have Dan Moose, who wants to continue to push us to think outside of our box, to plant churches and to see disciples made. That we have Dave Lindy who, who checks up on theology as well and helps place pastors in churches and helps churches to grow in health. I'm glad that we have them. But the way that our denomination is made up doesn't allow them to be the head. They can't give us a verdict on what we are to do as a church. In the same way, I can't give you the verdict on what we're to do as a church. I can't just stand up and say, here's where we're going, and if you don't like it, go find a different church. Because Jesus is the head of the church. We're all parts of the body. We only move where Jesus leads us. It's good news that Jesus is our head. Lastly, we see that Jesus is the reconciler. Let's pick it up at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Praise God. Thank the Lord Jesus. He reconciled us to God the Father by making peace through the blood of his cross, that now we are presented to God the Father as holy, blameless, and above reproach. How many of you feel holy and blameless and above reproach? Any of you brave enough to put your hand up on that one? Yeah, I'm blameless. All of my thoughts are pure. All of my intents are pure. All of my words are good. You can trust me for everything. I'm the faithful, stable, steadfast person. I never contradict myself. I'm not a hypocrite one bit. Any of you? No, didn't think so. But Jesus has reconciled us to God the Father. He's, he's reconciled our account. We are now lined up with God the Father. We are no longer alienated. We are welcomed in. And it says that he sees us. He sees you. If you are in Christ, God sees you as holy, blameless, and above reproach. All of the things that you're guilty of, all of the trash in your life that you are guilty of, all of the stuff that I am guilty of, if we're in Christ, God looks at it and he says, we're reconciled. That's gone. You're blameless. I see you as pure and spotless. This is good news for us as individuals and it's good news for us as a church. 
We can't reconcile ourselves. We can't do it. But Jesus stood in the gap and did it for us. Amen? Church can hurt. Jesus can heal. This passage shows us who Jesus is. He's creator, he's sustainer, he's reconciler, he's the head, he's the image. That's who Jesus is. And this passage tells us that he's the head of the church. So any of you who have been hurt by a church, any of you who are looking for a new church, any of you who are confused about the body, about the church being the body of Christ, I just want to let you know that we at Park Community desperately want to be the type of church where Jesus is both theologically the head, we, we know that from Scripture that he's the one in charge, but also practically where he's the head, where he makes the decisions, where, where the leadership team doesn't just take their position and, and, and tell people what to do, or where little sections of the church don't just complain until they get their, we, their way. You know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. You heard that phrase? We don't want to be a church where that happens. We want to be a church where Jesus is the head and he is preeminent in everything. That means we talk about Jesus. That means we pray in Jesus' name. That means we sing songs about Jesus. That means that we see this as his body. And so that means where his head leads, we follow. We let him make the first move. We let him tell us where to go and we submit ourselves to our head. As he moves, our body moves. We believe and intend to do and live in light of this good news, that Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the creator of all things. Jesus is first in all things. Jesus is the sustainer of all things. He's the head of all things, and he's the reconciler of all things. My hope and prayer for us as a church is that we would receive and experience the healing presence of Jesus Christ. Every Sunday as we gather to worship, but also in our interactions with one another, that this would be a safe place for us to experience the goodness and grace of God through his one and only son, Jesus, who's our head. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for giving up your own life on our behalf. You laid down your body, and as a result, we now have this as our body, and you as our head. We do believe that you are the image of the invisible God. And for those this morning who don't believe that or may be struggling with that, I pray that you would give them the gift of faith. We believe that you are the creator of all things and that is for our good. And those this morning struggling to believe that, I pray that you would give them the gift of faith. We believe that you are first in all things and that we ought to keep you in that position. I repent for the times that we that we flip it around and that we put ourselves or our preferences in first place. We pray that you would have your rightful place on the throne in our lives and in our church. And for those struggling to see it as a good thing that you are first, I pray that you would give them the gift of faith. We believe that you are the, the sustainer of all things. And we thank you for sustaining our faith. And I pray for those struggling to see it that you would give them the gift to see that you sustain we thank you that you are the head of all things. And I pray those struggling to see that, I ask that you would give them the faith to see that you are the head and that is good. And we praise you and we believe that you are the reconciler of all things, that we could not reconcile ourselves to God the Father, but you have done it on our behalf in our place. We praise you and thank you for that. 
those struggling to see you as the reconciler of all things, I pray that you would give them the faith, give them the gift of faith in your son, Jesus Christ. It's all about you, Jesus. Amen.